John, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Good to be no, here, man. I uh, I appreciate it, John. I think you were the first person I had on the channel. It was uh, I, I really appreciated you willing to come on to some nobody's channel and uh, talk baseball cards, man. I didn't know that was the first one. Yeah, man. Like uh, I didn't really know who to reach out to or anything like that. And then I stumbled upon your stuff, and I was like, man, this guy's freaking awesome. You got like the best stuff. So like, yeah. Definitely, oh, I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, uh, you got thousands of subs almost immediately. <laughs> I think I'm honored uh, more so, but yeah, man, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so tell us a little bit. Uh, you know, well, I was looking. I, I don't watch everybody daily or whenever they put out a video, uh, but yours, I um, every time it pops up, I watch it. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed it's been a little while since uh, since a video's come out. What's going on? It's just the holidays, or what's going on? Yeah, I mean, a little combination, uh, uh, busy at work, the holidays, and, uh, you know, I just got uh, got a little burned out um, of the hobby. This has been uh, this has been an interesting year with the, uh, you know, the, the price increases, and it's like for auctions, it's almost like you're fighting to win, win them, um, where before, uh, <laughs> you know, you didn't have to work so hard, yeah. and everybody focusing on the the prices and the, you know, $60,000 difference between a 7.5 and an eight uh, and PSA, stuff like that. It's just Man. gotten a little overwhelming. No, I agree with you a hundred percent on a lot of that stuff. I felt the same way. <clears throat> One thing you said there in particular that stuck out with me is people fixating on the prices. That's a big reason why I've moved. Well, it's, it's I think it's part of the reason why I've moved into uh, Jersey cards because nobody's looking at that stuff. And like, you get to just, you know, you pay what you want for a card and that's awesome. You know, where like everything else, people are like, what's the latest comp? You know, I, I got to get comp for it. It's so frustrating. Yeah, I was surprised when I, I went to a show in Tampa with some fellow YouTubers and, uh, you know, people were pulling out the comps right then and there. They're negotiating. Yeah. There's no prices. It's a little bit of a different world. Yeah, it's so much different than walking around. I mean, I remember, man, I remember going to a show like 15 years ago and you 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 had to make a decision before you went to the show. Am I going to walk around with this Beckett in my hand the whole time, or am I going to walk around and blindly make offers to people? You know, that was your choice. It's one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so different I, uh, now. <clears throat> you know, um, what I see is it's it's like the same big cards trading hands, right? They're going for ridiculous amounts of money. And it, it's kind of good for me as a collector because I chase the more rare, obscure vintage cards. And I, I feel like a lot, of the, a lot of the newer collectors don't know the whole history of sports so much. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the players that I go after, a lot of other people haven't even heard of these players, even though they may be, you know, may have been fantastic players or had some major place in sports history. And those kinds of cards and collectibles are still pretty affordable and kind of under the radar. And so I've focused on, uh, focused on them even more uh, since this boom. Because if you're going to go after a 33 Gaudi Babe Ruth and uh, 54 Hank Aaron, those kinds of cards, they just keep going up and up. Of course, uh, the top 10, top 10 price cards on these auctions are almost always LeBron's. He's probably half of them. And how many rookie cards does he have? Right, yeah. No, and it's number really, cards. Sorry. Yeah, 
It's a really good point too, John, because like <clears throat> I know I kind of I mean I've always been a football card collector, but then I've really kind of deep dived into football once I like realized how cheap the greatest you know guys of all time their rookie cards were. I mean, relatively cheap. You know, Namath is two grand, Brown is two grand. It's the two most iconic iconic cards in in football. You think about that and compare it to baseball, you know, it's not it's nowhere close. And that's just 50, 60 years ago. And I think just to your point, people don't do I don't know. People don't care about those sports, that era. They don't know about it. I don't know what it is. Uh, and I'm sure for baseball, as you go even further back, it's amazing what you can pick up there. Yeah, you know, I mean, football has always been undervalued compared to baseball. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons um originally was it didn't have the card history that baseball does, right? You can't go back to the 1800s. There's only one football card I'm aware of from the 1800s. It was a Harvard player. Um, his name's escaping me right now. Harry, I think. Harry something. Anyway, uh, that's yeah. like uh, the only football card from back then. And, you know, the NFL didn't exist. It was a, a later blooming sport. It wasn't as popular as baseball when it, when it first came out. And it just doesn't have the card history. And so for years, you know, the Jim Brown rookie, the Namath rookie, the Johnny Unitas, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Walter Payton, you know, there are certain cards that people are chasing. Tom Brady, uh, that uh, signature card of his, that Contenders. rookie. Yeah. And they went for, you know, tons of money. And then the other cards uh, you could practically, uh, you know, pick up for next to nothing. Now, Football has come up more recently. Uh, another problem I see with uh, vintage football, and I, I think it's only going to get worse as far as people being interested in the old players, because there have been so many rule changes in football, and they've added numbers of games that no old player will ever hold a record, right? You're never going to have an old quarterback, an old wide receiver ever hold a record, because after the Mel Blunt rule, it just opened up the passing game, and we have mediocre quarterbacks now throwing for 300 a game. Yep. And so when, uh, as people, you know, there's, sports fans are so into stats and overall stats that uh, they're just not going to stack up when all said and done to these modern, uh, these modern stats. I mean, if you look at Don Hudson, I'm willing to bet 90%, maybe more of, your, of the listeners right now don't know who Don Hudson is. And he very well could be, I'm saying could be, this is all subjective, the greatest wide receiver that ever lived. He dominated his era. He led, like when you're talking receiving yards, receiving touchdowns and uh, receptions, he led, uh, he, pl he played 11 total years. He led all those categories seven, eight, and nine times. And originally set the all-time touchdown mark that at one time was considered to be like Babe Ruth's home run mark. And once they opened up the game and they added games, um, Steve Largent eventually broke that. Mm -hmm. um, then it was broken again. But my point is that, you know, he was uh, just one of those phenomenal players. He averaged a touchdown catch every five catches. And this is in an era, in an era where they ran the football mostly. Right. Uh, but if you look at his 1955, that's his only football card, 1955 All-American, it is so undervalued. It's like you could pick it up for like 160 bucks. Hey, don't be telling people this, John. That's a card on my hit on my list to knock out. And I'm like, man, I don't want to spend 150 for it. I, keep I don't think out. people Ooh. realize how good he was. 
there was a there was an interview with him and he was he was old i think he was i think he was like 74 at the time and somebody said uh, the reporter said you know with the modern game today and all these guys catching all these touchdown passes how many do you think you would catch if you were playing today and he said uh 50. now his touchdown record was uh what was it 99 and he's like you mean if you're playing today you'd only have 50 and he said well i am 74 years old <laughs> oh man that's pretty good it's it's funny you mentioned him in particular i've mentioned him a couple times on the channel like in the last couple of weeks because i am looking to pick up that 55 tops card so that number might be different than you think but i was thinking about him the other day and because i had read a piece on him about you know how good he was and the best i could figure it was is he he played like maybe tyree kill and jerry rice like he just seemed to be there, no one could match him from a speed perspective and then also he was just smarter at route running and doing all i mean he was just so advanced i mean that's what it seemed like anyway from reading about him yeah so but yeah to your point you know guys like that another one i read uh i was i watched a video and i read a comment they talked about Otto graham being one of the best quarterbacks of all time and then somebody looked up stats you know somebody's got a computer they googled it and they said He's barely got like three more touchdowns and interceptions for his career. How could you possibly consider him the greatest quarterback? Well, that person had no idea that he's probably, you know, during that decade, maybe the only quarterback who had more touchdowns and interceptions, you know, like it just, it was just completely different. Just to your point that all these guys are going to get buried in stats, you know, as, as time keeps moving on. Yeah. And you talk about Otto Graham. I mean, he was the original Tom Brady. He went to 10 championship games. Yep. Yeah. And what, won six of them? Yeah, I think that's right. Six. Yeah, I wasn't it. I think it was 10 straight. I, I'm pretty sure it was 10 straight and autogram and autogram, man. He was amazing, right? He plays college. Is it college ball or high school where he's like, you know, an all state or all whatever basketball player. And then um, Paul Brown drafts him because he's just like, ah, he's athletic, whatever. We need a quarterback who can run the ball. So he puts him back there at quarterback and he ends up being like, you know, one of the first elite passers in the, in, in, uh, the NFL. And how about uh you know Bob Waterfield? Uh I know that name. I'm not familiar with this story though. He has these old videos where a guy would put a cigarette in his mouth and he would throw the football and knock it out. Oh man. <laughs> Dad gum. He married crazy. some some famous uh you know uh one of the um uh, an actress that was like really really attractive. Uh, one of the one of the most famous actresses back then. I forget. Her name's escaping me. Um. Oh man. Oh, and the, the football was so much bigger then too. It was way different. But anyway, but you know, just talking about the number stuff and football, like we we just talked about it with football and how all that makes sense. In a basketball, we're seeing with points and the three pointers, yada yada. But what about baseball? You know, I I think baseball. To me, I looked at it and I thought about this. I was like, man, it's really the, the game's way different. The introduction of launch angle into hitters minds has really changed the game i mean i do you think we're gonna see people get buried in stats uh, in baseball the way we're gonna see it in football and basketball yeah i mean when you have rookies come up and hit 50 home runs let's let's take for instance if you believe that everything's equal from then to now right mm -hmm. uh, you believe everything that we watch that means that every pitcher throwing today even the scrubs throw harder than Bob Gibson. Mm -hmm. I mean, they changed the way they clock the pitch. And so it makes it look like everybody's throwing harder than they used to. 
And oh, really? How, how did you – I thought you were talking about Bob Gibson and then moving the mound, but what, what do you mean they changed the way they clocked the pitch? Oh, that's what I mean. The way they changed the yeah. clock, now every pitcher throws harder yeah. than Bob Gibson did. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not believable because they, yeah. they used to clock it um, when it crossed the plate, and I think now they clock, clock it as it comes out of the hand. Oh, they did something like that. That makes sense. And so, um, you know, I, I, did, I stopped watching baseball for a while. And I started watching again, and I'm watching these guys throw 90 mile an hour curveballs. Like, like everybody I'm watching is throwing near 90 or or above, and it's just like insane to me. Uh, and then I discovered that they they changed the way they clock that. I think they just try to make baseball more exciting. You know, I don't know if they juice the ball, but man, I mean, <laughs> a home run seems to decide every game. I mean, I've never seen so many walk off home runs, and uh, just middle infielders hitting home runs like this. I mean, when Justin Verlander says that the ball's juiced, you it's know, crazy. who am I to argue? He's a Hall of, future Hall of Fame pitcher. I was talking to someone because I was always I was pretty anti the ball's juiced, uh, you know, movement until Verlander said. And I said, well, Verlander says it, you know. But <clears throat> I was talking to somebody and they said, well, you know, I said, you know, explain what does it mean by the ball's juice? Because I'm thinking there's something in the middle of the ball that makes it just, you know, fly a little bit more. But they were talking about reducing the size of the seam so the pitchers don't get as good a grip and then also so that it's more aerodynamic as it flies off the bat. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense to me. When you say it like that, then, yeah, I can see where the ball is juiced. It just has a little bit more flight on it, uh, you know, and that adds up. I saw Otani earlier this season. He got fooled on a pitch and essentially went like this, and the ball left the ballpark. Oh, you know, in, yeah. the, in the old days, you would see a guy and it looked like it was leaving the ballpark. He looked like he clubbed it and it would, you know, be to the warning track. And now you see a ball that looks like it's going to be a pop up and it leaves the park. Yeah, it's I mean, they've been talking about that since the steroid era, but I guess that's two different things. Right. One was steroids and one is now, you know, the balls. Everything's just a little bit more optimized i guess for for home runs and strikeouts as it all seems anyone cares well, about it seems you know during the during the steroid era it brought fans back to baseball it was so exciting to watch these guys hit 60 70 home runs in a season and uh watching that home run race between mcguire and sosa and then bonds is very exciting and I, I think they had to fill the void when uh when they wanted to crack down on the steroid use <laughs> and uh, somehow create these home runs i don't know it just doesn't seem normal that all those generations, it wasn't like that. And now you have, uh, like I said, rookies come up and hit 50. Let me tell you something, just to put it into perspective. In 1964, Willie Mays hit 50. It wasn't done again until 1977 when George Foster did it. And it wasn't done again until 1990 or 91 when Cecil Fielder did it. And then 96, Brady Anderson did it. So in those three decades, uh, it was done th three times, right? Yeah. And then four with uh, Brady Anderson. But now it's done every year. Every single year somebody hits 50 or multiple people. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy, John. I go back and look at numbers because I remember I'm like, Bagwell was one of the best, man. And I go back and look at his numbers and I'm like, meh. <laughs> you know, but it's just so different now. And that's only 20 years ago I'm talking about. It's so different now. I mean, like you talked about middle infielders. I was just talking about this. I was like, 
You look at the free agent class at shortstop. It's ridiculous. Uh, Trevor Story, Carlos Correa, uh, Corey Seager, uh, Marcus Simeon, second base. But still, uh, you got Trey Turner recently moved. It's, I mean, 15, just 15 years ago, a shortstop who hit 30 home runs was probably an MVP candidate. And now half the shortstops in the league are hitting 30 home runs. Shorts, if a shortstop hit 30 home runs years ago, he would have made the Hall of Fame. There yeah, was only I mean, there was only one that I could think of, and that was Ernie Banks. And that's part of why he was so populated, popular. And if you think about it, for all those generations, generations, going back to the beginning of baseball, he was the only home run hitting shortstop. And now they all are. Yeah. Now the scrubs, the the man, the third shortstop on a on a major league roster can go up there and pop 20 home runs like it's nothing. What? <laughs> I mean, my goodness, just, I mean, 15 years is not a long time, certainly in the world of the life of baseball. 15 years ago, if your shortstop hit 10 home runs, you were happy as could be. That's a good hitting shortstop. Put him in the lineup. We're good to go. And, you know, now it's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, know. a lot of it is the game has changed and they, they changed the way, you know, grow, when I was growing up, all the best players played shortstop, right? Mm. But then when you somehow, when they get to the majors, uh, they were always the worst hitters, but growing up, they were always the best hitters, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's funny how that goes too, but <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. What do you think of, do you have any thoughts on the shift in baseball? How that's done any good, or, you know, is it good or bad for baseball? You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm neutral on it. If you want to employ it, I, I am very adamantly opposed to doing away with it, making it illegal. Because I think you have nine guys out there. You should be able to play them where you want. Um, and the reason being is that if you can't, if, if, if you're one of the best hitters in the whole world and you can't slap a ball down third base for a double, that, you know, a walking double, yeah, then that's on you. If you want to pull it into the, into the <laughs> you know, into that, um, I, I just don't the get it. Point. I do not get it. Because all your greatest hitters for average and – we don't really – baseball fans don't seem to care about average anymore. You know, that used to be one of the, one of the biggest matrix. But if, if you look at all the great hitters for average, with the exception of Ted Williams, they all hit to all fields. Tony Gwynn hit to all fields. Clemente hit to all fields. You know, Wade Boggs, Ty Cobb, even Babe Ruth. Like, you go – everybody that, that had a high batting average, could spray the ball and hit it where it needed to go. And these guys with, with a shift on can't slap a double down the left field. Yeah. You know, Ted yep. Williams used to, used to do that. He'd, he'd kind of challenge them and he'd pull into that shift. Well, I was watching an old World Series game. Um, they were in the World Series in the late 50s. I forget the specific year. And they did that shift to him, and that's exactly what he did. He just ripped one down the, the third baseline because when it was a World Series game and it counted, uh, he got a hit. Right, yeah. And Absolutely. if you can't get a hit, if you can't slap that down third, you deserve to get out. Or you just want to be like, I don't know, what is it, an ego thing where there's all these people on the right, so you're going to pull it anyway? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like, who knows? I'm going way off here, but so much of our society is all about everything. Like, I'm the best at this one thing, and that's what I'm going to do, and that you're not going to take me off my game. And so I feel like it's it's the hitter saying, this is what I do, and I'm going to do it. I don't care what you do. I'm the best when I do this. This is what I'm going to do. But I don't know. 
Well, you know, I think the other thing is, is they're brought up learning to pull the ball like that for to give them extra power. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a, a baseball coach who played minor league baseball, and he taught me to pop my hips and pull. And um, it did give me a lot more power. But once he taught me that, like once I learned that, I couldn't unlearn it. And mm-hmm. I had the hardest time hitting to the other fields. But I mean, you know, I was growing up. I wa- it wasn't my job. I wasn't yeah. making millions of dollars to, uh, yeah, 100%, you know, to, yeah. to relearn how to how to hit it to the other field. Yeah, so and, and one I, thing I understand that's just kind of how it's taught these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I guess to that point, and to the point you had just said, you know, I mean, again, even I'll go back twenty years ago. I remember I'd go over to my grandma's house and I'd get the newspaper and I'd go look at the stats. I would look at home runs, I looked at RBIs, and I looked at average. That's it. And I think it's I think it's foolhardy to compare players seventy years ago to players today because when you look at players today across both generations they are motivated by money and players today money is decided by war what's your war and that most in large part is decided by power what's your home runs you know 60 years ago people looked at average you know average home run was sexy yeah but you know average was like the achievable one people would shoot for and it's just you play the game different even though it's the same game and it hasn't changed the way like football has you know at a, at a macro level it has changed i guess at a more nuanced level and how it's yeah, I mean, when I would flip over a baseball card, the first thing I would look at is batting average, right? And yep. and for a pitcher, it was ERA. Yep, and, yeah, ERA. You know, like yeah. I said, I stopped watching baseball for a long time. And when I started watching it again, I'm, I'm like, what's war? Like, I, I had never heard of war. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, that's the most important thing. And uh, it's just things, things have changed. I remember uh, I went to work in Baltimore in 2010. And I remember I, I, I was walking distance to uh, happy hour places. I lived in Canton Square and there's all these bars and everything. So I, I lived by myself. I was there for work. And after work, I would go up and go to happy hour. And every night somebody was throwing a perfect game that year. I don't know if you remember how crazy of a year that is. But uh, there were like three or four perfect games that year. And do you know prior to that, in the entire history of baseball, the entire history, there were only 19 thrown. And yeah. uh, that's that's when things started to kind of change and get a little what, crazy. For what me year was baseball. that, John? What year was that? 2010. 2010. <clears throat> who, who, do you remember any of those perfect games? Was it Josh Beckett, Mark Burley? Did either oh, of those I, you know what? I forget, I forget everybody that threw them. Yeah. I just remember being at the bars and watching these perfect games like they were nothing. I mean, we saw that this year, right, with the seven no-hitters or whatever it was, like in the first month of the season? Yeah, I mean, they used to be really rare. I mean, you you know, that's what made the Nolan Ryan seven so incredible. And Sandy Koufax drew four and only played half as long as uh, right. Ryan. You know, and, and some of these guys, like Bob Gibson, only had one. Clemens had zero. He He hates that, so... Yeah, but Clemens is on the top of the uh, most strikeouts list. He's like number one, two, and three um, through like, what, 18, 19 strikeouts in a game. Mm. What uh, you, you mentioned you had stopped watching baseball. When did you stop and what brought you what's, what made you stop and what brought you back? What made me stop was the Pittsburgh Pirates. I've, I'm a Pirates fan, and uh, we started to become a farm system for the rest of the league. And at that time, we had Brian Giles and Jason um, um, Kendall. 
And I was a fan of those guys. And they got rid of Kendall. And I remember I told my dad, I said, if they get rid of Brian Jowes, I'm done watching because, I mean, you got to give me one player to yeah. root for. Because every time we got a good player, they're traded. And to this day, it's still that way. It's still that way. I mean, yeah. they held on to McCutcheon for a long time. And we had, they had three years there where they were com very competitive. But then they just started letting them all go. And uh, we're back to the old days. So anyway, I was true to my word. When I said I was going to stop watching, I did. I, I didn't watch baseball for like a decade. I and I know that makes me not a true baseball fan. No. Um, as much as I, I always was and thought I was. But I, I, it just wasn't fun for me anymore to watch those guys. I got frustrated. Yeah, just happens, I, I don't know. They should pull the team from them. If they want to have a minor league team, they should go have a minor league team. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I'm there with you. I always rooted for the Pirates. You know, as an Astros fan, I grew up with the Astros and Pirates in the same division in the Central, the NL Central. And I rooted for the Pirates because they were always at the bottom. You know, I like the bottom dwellers. You know, I'm a fan of y'all. But I always like, I like, I like Brian Giles, who I guess they traded to the Padres, I think it was. I don't remember yeah. now. Yeah. Well, you and know, the Pirates were always competitive. They always had a, a decent team. They were always competitive, at least. You know, always. They had a yeah. long history of winning a lot of World Series, you know, throughout the baseball history. And then they just became this farm system. And it's just frustrating. You know, there are teams that struggle. I think of the Mets. But at least they try. They put a team out there. You know, they might not win, but they're not. Every time, you know, they don't have Pete Alonso. And then as soon as he gets good, they trade him. And Jacob DeGrom, as soon as he gets good, they trade him. You know, if you look, if you watch the playoffs, how many ex-Pirates are on those teams? <laughs> Probably quite a few, I'm sure, usually. Man, yeah, it's it's rough, you know. I mean, the Astros, we went through that, a rebuilding stage where you're just shipping off talent. <clears throat> and it's hard to go see a Hunter Pence do so well for the Phillies and then the Giants and whatever. But, yeah, I mean, the, the Pirates, it feels like it's been since, I guess, I mean, before I was watching baseball, since Bonds left, I guess, I don't know. Well, before they went to the playoffs there a few years ago, <clears throat> they went three years in a row. Two of them were one-game playoffs. And, uh, man, they faced Madison Bumgarner the first time. He threw, like, a one-hitter shutout. And then they faced Jake Arrieta the year he was on fire. Oh, and yeah, he threw, yeah. a, like, a one-hit shutout. And then uh, to throw salt on the wound, he hit a home run, too. Uh, and then they had the one series with uh, St. Louis that went the distance. That was a great series, actually. So they were at least competitive. But prior to that, they had become, and I couldn't even believe this because when I was growing up, Pittsburgh teams were always competitive. But they had become the losingest franchise in any sport in history. And meaning the most year, consecutive years they went without going to a playoff game. That's crazy. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I guess when you're growing up, you know, the Pirates are, you know, good. And then the Steelers, I mean, they've never not been good, really. So then, yeah, that's just, and I'm sure, I'm guessing you're more of a Pirates fan than a Steelers fan. Probably I would guess Pirates first, so. Uh, no, no, no. I'm definitely more of a Steelers fan now. Now. Uh, okay, but I, I, I was always pretty equal, both. Uh, I never missed a Steelers game. Although this last one I had to walk away from. That was just, that was just God awful. Well, it's time to move on from Big Ben, though. I don't, Big Ben didn't play this week, did he? Yeah, he did. He did. Okay. Well, not really, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he struggled a little bit. <laughs> He's a shot hats fighter to, at this hats point. Hats off to Big Ben, though. I mean, he made, uh, you know, when he came on board, he made the Steelers always competitive. Um, you know, you were always in every game because we went through a long, a long list of uh, quarterbacks that, you know, 
in this in this day you have to have in in any day you have to have a good quarterback to win you just oh, have to yeah. um and he became the uh you know he holds a record for most consecutive wins by a rookie quarterback did he win 15 straight was it i i think it was 12 straight i remember watching the game we were playing the ravens and uh we had tommy maddox and tommy maddox was like a cinderella story XFL. And uh, the Ravens almost decapitated him. They hit, they beat him up so bad, knocked him out of the game, ended his career, and Big Ben came in. He was a rookie. And uh, he won every game and took us to the championship game and lost to New England. But he won every single game he started, and he broke a uh, Steeler quarterback's record, Mike Kruzak, who uh, filled in in 1976. He was a rookie uh, for Terry Bradshaw when he got hurt. And they turned to the Steel Curtain defense. And they handed the ball to Rocky and Franco, and Kruzak threw very few passes. But Rocky and Franco both got a thousand yards, and that was, you know, very unheard of. Uh, and and it was in a, uh, you know, two two game less season back then. And the Steel Curtain in nine games gave up a total of something like twenty eight points and had five shutouts, and they went to the championship game Holy when Bradshaw smokes. got hurt. Man, that's wild. Now, do you have a do you have a a lot of Steelers cards in your collection? Absolutely, I have everybody. Everybody is. I mean, <clears throat> I guess you started collecting them since you you know started collecting because you like the Steelers. When I was a little kid, I mean, seeing uh, I I distinctly remember like 1975, 1976 cards with the Steelers, and uh, to this day, those are like my favorite sets. And when you would when you would see a Steeler come out, it was it was so exciting because back then. I mean, they were just so dominant. They were on all the movies. They were on talk shows. They they were just everywhere, you know, and TV commercials. They were they were just larger than life back then. I mean, <clears throat> I still see it because <clears throat> you know we talked about. I like to buy NFL stuff and a, a lot of the '50s, '60s, and '70s guys specifically. Mel Blunt, Jack Ham, and Lambert. Oh, and Joe Green. All of those guys are expensive, man. They're all costly. You know, I, I had to put them all in my NFL 100 collection, and I'm, it's either a patch or an auto card or an auto patch. Those guys were not cheap. And they're, but they're, they're, they're nowhere as near as expensive as they should be. Oh, I, I agree with that. It's ridiculous that I can sit here and say, I'm going to buy an autograph or game-use patch from the top 100 NFL players of all time. It's ridiculous that I can sit here and say that I can do that and it's affordable and it's really not bad at all. It's ridiculous that I can sit here and say, I'm going to buy every NFL Hall of Fame rookie card, uh, you know, well, one of each Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, that should not be attainable for the amount of money that I'm putting in the hobby. It's To me, it's crazy how low football is. Right. And then just to your point, it feels crazy if you go back 30, 40 years, how low some of those guys are relative to how good they were, you know, during their eras. Yeah, thank God my, my man Clemente didn't play for uh, for these owners. He would have been gone. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because <laughs> anybody that's good, the Pirates get rid of. Oh, I, the, the Pirates. <laughs> I thought you meant baseball today. Oh, man, yeah. I feel you there. You know, a guy who I have actually been buying a little bit of, you may appreciate this. You may not. But I th I can't say he's undervalued. His cards are probably properly valued, but I think he's underrated as a player, and I think the league was not ready for him as Cordell Stewart. I think Cordell, man, he did not get a fair shake in the league. Well, let me, let me tell you this. Cordell, um, I was a big fan when he came up. So when he was Slash, he was the number one selling jersey uh, in America that year. 
-hmm. Everybody wanted, he was, he would have gone to the Hall of Fame as Slash. Mm -hmm. He actually was, uh, he was, man, he was such a phenomenal wide receiver, never dropped a ball and would run over people and had that speed. But he wanted to be a quarterback. And he just wasn't the best quarterback. He had his moments. There were some games where he was fantastic, but he was very up and down. And, uh, you know, as he, as he got going, he kind of got less effective. And there were long periods of time, you know, where he struggled to complete a pass. But as Slash, and he was unstoppable. And I wish he would have stayed as Slash because he was so fun to watch. Uh, just think, a, a, a talented, talented athlete. Yeah, I, mean, I was I was a fan of Cordell's. If 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 he was in the league today, I mean he's like the the best version of Taysom Hill you can imagine. I mean, like he would just be the best gadget player in the NFL. I mean, I don't know. I think that's going to be a thing in the NFL. I think gadget players going to catch on. I don't see why it wouldn't. You know, a guy who can run, throw, and I mean, it just you know it keeps the defense on its heels. I don't know, but yeah, Cordell, man. Uh, oh well. Well, look at the success that the Ravens are having. I mean, they essentially turn all their quarterbacks, their second stringer, their third stringer. Yep. Uh, um, when they come in, they run the same offense, and it is they have they essentially made their quarterback a running back. And all of them run. And it's hard to stop. When you have a guy with Lamar Jackson's speed and agility and plus he could throw, I mean, it, it's really, really hard to stop. I, I was impressed when I watched the Steelers play him the first time they had to face him. Uh, they had um, T.J. Watt just shadow him. So T.J. Watt would come off the end, and he didn't care if he handed the ball or kept the ball. He tackled Lamar. Didn't matter. He just ignored everything else and just went for him. Hit Lamar. Yeah. And uh, it was it was pretty effective. Uh, and they won that game. And, and it was the, it's the only time I've seen a defense do that. Because I, I, I watch him where, you know, three guys will hit him, and he ends up running 70 yards for a touchdown. Yeah, I mean, Lamar's amazing. I guess it'll be interesting to see if this starts to grow and become more <clears throat> commonplace in the NFL because you have Greg Roman, who's the offensive coordinator for the Ravens. He was also the offensive coordinator for Kaepernick. And that's really – Kaepernick is where you really start to see this kind of hybrid quarterback come in. Obviously, Vic, Cunningham. But these guys, the, the play calls were designed for them to be passers, and sometimes they just made phenomenal running plays. Uh, but with Roman and what they're building there in Baltimore, that's, you know, that's kind of the forefront of we have hybrid quarterbacks that can run and throw. Yeah, very few of them um, are effective for many years doing that. They either get hurt or people figure them out. Uh, the one that they never seemed to figure out was Michael Vick. That yep. guy, I mean, I, his runs were amazing. Yeah, Vick and was when amazing. When he went to Philadelphia, man, he just was tearing it up. Yeah, he's a fun one to listen to uh, in his interviews. Oh, he does a lot of them. He's on Fox Sports, I think. But he talks about it. You know, and he talks about he came back into the league. Andy Reid took him onto that Eagles team, and Andy Reid really coached him up and helped him understand how to be a better quarterback. And uh, it's, I don't know, interesting progression. Uh, he had like two team. great seasons there. I know I, I had him on my fantasy league. I picked him because I knew he would run a lot in. Man, I I remember I went to bed one night and I was losing by fifty points. And I had him. And I'm, I just went to bed. I, I was watching the game, but I'm like, there's no way. I'm a, I, I wasn't even thinking I could win. And he's ended up scoring 63 points for me. Gosh, that's wild. I mean, he was just running them in, throwing them in. 
passing for all kind of yardage. He, he's an exciting, uh, he's an exciting, exciting player. Lamar Jackson is is that kind of a player. Yep. And I mean, dude, let's go on. We're talking sports, but let's bring that into sports cards. Like players like that. I mean, Vic's never going to make the Hall of Fame, but do players no. like that have a place in your collection for you? Absolutely. I, I love I love having uh, anybody that has some place in sports history, whether they hold a record, whether it's just somebody that I watched that really admired. You know, a lot of these players are the the hottest thing for uh, a couple years, and then you don't hear about them anymore. Yeah. But to me, to me as a as a as a sports fan and as a collector, they don't have to play twenty years for me to collect them. You know, it's like if they played, uh, if they had a short career, but they were phenomenal, you know, let's face it in football, you, you blow out your knee and you could be done, right? Or one bad injury. And uh, that doesn't mean that you weren't the best at the time. Right. You know, I, I would argue that the, and, and lots of people are going to disagree with me, but if you watch Gail Sayers in his prime before his knee injury, I don't think there's ever any, any running back any better. I mean, a guy that scores six touchdowns and should have had seven, but they took him out on the one-yard line, uh, returned punts for touchdowns, caught, made catches. I mean, he, he could do it all. And if you watch highlights of him running, he was insane. I know Barry Sanders was insane. Walter Payton was insane. But they, they weren't the kickoff returner he was. They weren't the receiver that he was. And for him to do it then, too, you know, I mean <clears> – <throat> You just didn't and see he, that. He as did much. it on I mean, terrible teams. Of course, so did so did Peyton and so did Sanders. But he was uh he was their offense. Yeah, I think more and more I've been digging because I, I talked about NFL 100, NFL Hall of Fame, and now I'm thinking I'm like, I think most of my collections are probably gonna go all the way out to NFL All Pro. Because like there's guys that I like. I have sitting over here behind me, 2004. It's a beautiful Carson Palmer second year patch. It's like part of the bangle. I'm like, that's the coolest freaking patch I'm ever going to see. And it was 20 bucks. You know, it's like, okay. I mean, yeah, he's not a Hall of Famer, but he was, you know, a pretty good quarterback in his day. And like, I don't know. I kind of want that in my collection. I think it's a cool card. And I think it's a unique way to remember that. Well, one, you know, one of the, one of the favorite guys, two cards in my collection are the 75 and 76, Ernie Holmes. You ever hear of him? No, I don't know him. Ernie Fats Holmes. Fats. He was a defensive lineman, one of the original defensive lineman on the Steel Curtain defense. He shaved his, he carved his uh, hair into an arrow. And he was, he was arrested once. He was on the Ohio Turnpike and he was being chased uh, with a police helicopter. And he actually pulled over and shot at the helicopter. It was like, I mean, this guy was a character. And then yeah, he had a running a back, Frenchie Fuqua. <laughs> and during the disco era, he had glass uh elevated shoes platform shoes they were all glass and he put live goldfish in them dang but he rushed crazy. for over 200 yards on monday night football man so uh you know there's a lot of and he was he was a solid running back but there are a lot of great you know good really good athletes um and, and if you don't know the history or you didn't watch them right then you never heard of them but that doesn't mean that they weren't good there are a lot of uh, more obscure baseball Hall of Famers like Chip, Chick Hafey, uh, Ernie Lombardi's one that, nev that never gets enough love. He was a catcher who had two MVP awards, you know, well, stuff like that, that a lot, of, uh, a lot of collectors probably don't even know those guys. Well, like to me, as someone who is, you know, is younger, 
compared to a lot of people in the hobby. Like, so I'm going through this NFL collection, this Hall of Fame collection. Before I buy a guy, I like to go do research and figure out who they are. Because I have my buddy Paul, people know him on the channel. And he's like, hey, go buy this card. It's a good deal. And I'm like, I'm not ready to buy it yet because I don't know who that guy is. I know he's on my list and I have to take him off the list. But I want to go learn who he is before I pick it up. Like, I don't know. For me, I want that connection to the purchase. And do you know uh, Big Daddy Lipskit? Lips, um, L I P S K E, is it S K um, Lipskin, O O N, I believe. Yeah, no, no, I don't know him. Well, Not Big yet. Daddy was one of the best defensive linemen ever to play the game. He had a drug problem. He played with, uh, he came up with the Colts and then played for the Steelers. My dad insists yeah. he's the greatest defensive lineman he ever watched. He was like a big guy that took up the whole middle. He was like, yeah. uh, he was like Joe Green was before Joe Green, though. Oh, before Joe Green. But Ooh. watch some film on him if you could find it. Or, yeah. or watch uh, what what the other players had to say about him. He was a beast. Yeah, that's another – and that's a – what you said there is a fun thing I like to do too. You know, some of these guys, I go look it up. Like, I, I, I can't – you're not going to find tape on some of these guys. You have to go watch people talk about them, you know. That's the right. they talk about them, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know. That Don Hudson, the one you brought up, you're not going to go find Don Hudson tape. You know, you have to read what Vince Lombardi said about Don Hudson. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. This guy was amazing. They have they have a little bit of film on him. Um, and he just runs away from people. He he just so good. Yeah, football, at least. they. Luckily, How about uh, Roosevelt Brown? Roosevelt Brown. I just picked up a Roosevelt Brown card. A pretty, well, this is my I have first to tell one. you, if you watch film on him, if he's not the greatest offensive lineman to ever play, I don't know who is. I watch when you watch film on him, it looks like that movie The Blind Side. He just takes guys and throws them into the stands. <laughs> just drives them out of the stadium. Uh, it, insane. Just insane. I, you brought it up and now it piqued my interest because I'm curious for my Roosevelt Brown card. I bought it for 20 bucks on ComC. It's a great, it's not great, it's an, a slabbed leaf auto card. Um, it's a cut card from a check and the check was for like 900 bucks. I'm like, that's pretty cool. You know, do you have any cut autos? Is that something you have in the, in the collection at all? I don't have any checks, but I have this, this is probably, this is my favorite. I have a satchel page. Oh, that's awesome. Best wishes, man. That I is have awesome. A, I have a couple index cards. I have Sid Luckman yeah. uh, on an index card. Another, another player that doesn't get enough hobby love. He gets none. He still, uh, he still holds a record for. I think it's a touchdown. I think he holds a record for uh, the. How do I say? Throwing a touchdown pass every fewest attempts. Oh, I'm pretty sure he attempts, still holds that record. Fewest attempts which, per which, touchdown which, pass. Which, which again is insane in that era. Yeah. Right. It oh, was a yeah. running era. Yeah, he that probably, guy, uh, man. If you look up his stats, they're insane. He he might own every uh, Bears quarterback passing record still too. I mean, they haven't had much luck back there. So yeah, I mean, he still holds some records, which is unbelievable that anybody can hold a record. But I guess like if you throw a touchdown pass every five attempts, that's a record you could still hold on to. I guess you know yeah. that's not easy yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, and that's not going to get beaten in the league now because, like, the league is so pass-heavy that you're you're replacing the runs with passes, and that just means that per attempt, you know, there's going to be more attempts per touchdown now. Yeah, and, you know, when you, when I compare eras, that's something I, I look at is I look at how did they dominate their competition, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Don Hudson just – he led every year. Like, nobody was close to him. Yeah. In fact, 
At his retirement, I believe he had twice as many touchdowns as everybody else. Something like that. It was like just insane. And he dominated. Like, you know, um, Jerry Rice is considered to be the greatest receiver of all time. Of course, he played after the Mel Blunt role. He played, you know, Don Hudson played in 10-game seasons, 11-game seasons. He played one year in a, I think one year, one year in a 12-game season, right? And he played where you could beat that receiver up the whole way down the field. You know, Jerry Rice never played um, in the pre-Mel Blunt role era. So he was, you know, he couldn't be manhandled like like the old-time receivers could. Not to take anything away from him, because he very well could be the greatest. I'm not saying he's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But he didn't dominate like um, just win touchdown and and yardage and receptions every single year over Sterling Sharp and those guys. In yeah. fact, at one time, I think Sterling Sharp was probably considered to be a better receiver. Uh, and then, of course, he got hurt. He was he was my favorite. He was just phenomenal to watch. I mean, you watch yeah. him school. You know, I'm a huge Rod Woodson fan. I think he was just. Uh, possibly the greatest all-around defensive end, uh, defensive back that ever played. And you watch him school him. You watch him school Dion. Just school him. If you, if you go watch film on, uh, on him taking on those top corners, uh, unbelievable Sterling Sharp. I, like, I know that people have a huge affinity for Sterling, but, of course, I don't know exactly when he got hurt, but it was, it was certainly before I started watching football. I don't start watching football until, like, 98. So, yeah, now he had uh, what was that guy's name? Dan Majerski or something. He didn't have a quarterback uh, when he was young. So then when when they got Brett Favre and he he started to bloom, yeah, all of a sudden this guy was lighting it up when he finally got a quarterback. That's another thing that affects a wide receiver. You know, if you don't have a quarterback that can get you the ball, it doesn't really matter how good you are. You know, um, and if you look at all the top receivers, top. Uh, you know, stat receivers. They all had a fantastic quarterback that you have yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, you look at Rice. Rice has he, – he was in the prime for two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, one of them considered like, you know, arguably the second greatest quarterback of all time. You know what I mean? So he's had quite a bit of – he had quite a bit of luck. And on top – I mean, even luckier than that, he was there with, you know, uh, Walsh and just the whole offensive kind of explosion that uh, we ended up seeing out of San Francisco with the West Coast offense. Yeah. Then when Montana retired, uh, Steve Young came in. He did just as good. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so easy. Just, just, but I mean, Rice was a freak, though. You know, a freak athlete. And I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not going to sit here and say he wasn't better than Don Hudson. He was. He was. I don't know. But I do agree with you. At the very least, Don Hudson does not get the respect that he deserves uh, in the yeah, hobby. Yeah. So it. I mean, you can't compare eras, right? Yeah. They play under different roles at the different yep. times. But what what I what I started to say, and and I went sideways there for a minute is as i compare how they dominated the the others their competition at the time like how did babe ruth dominate his competition at the time for instance yeah you know head and shoulder. and then you look at uh you can look at things like um i don't know like in hockey i look at mario lemieux right he had all the problems and and to me he was like the greatest i've ever personally watched mm-hmm. right but if you look at his points per game played or goals per game played He's second on both those lists. And uh, that's another way to compare people. Like, you, how do you compare Nolan Ryan, who played 20 years, to Sandy Koufax, who played 10 years? Right. right? Does that mean that, like, it's just, it's just difficult. But when you, can, when you look at Sandy Koufax's five-year period, with that one five-year period, that's just the greatest, most dominating five-year period of any pitcher in history. 
I mean, just it's just insane. He set a World Series strikeout record. His ERA was like, I don't know, 1.79 or something for those five seasons. It was just ridiculous what he did and threw four no-hitters. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, this is something I've thought about, I guess, because when I'm coming up in the sports world, people start to debate LeBron versus Jordan and all that. And I, I, I early, I think, sided with you with like, you can't, you can't compare against generations. It's all different, you know, and it players keep getting better because they keep learning from the generations behind them, you know, right. And it, it, everything becomes more optimized. You know, people want to tell me Wilt Chamberlain's the greatest basketball player ever. Who has seen Wilt Chamberlain play? I mean, like I, I don't know what Wilt Chamberlain played like. I don't know. You know, I can't compare that to Jordan. Well, I, I can tell you what he didn't do or couldn't do, and that's throw a three-pointer. <laughs> <laughs> he used to throw uh, under our underhand. Oh, the uh, for the free, free throws? throws? Back then. Oh, man. So I'm in Charleston, and uh, I, I uh, went to a Charleston uh, a College of Charleston basketball game, right? And I'm watching, and there's this, this dude, and he's throwing his free throws under, under him. And I'm, I'm asking some people because I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know any of the players or anything. I just sure. go to check it yeah. out. And apparently, you know what? It was Rick Barry's uh, son. It was Rick Barry's son. And he was struggling with free throws. And Rick Barry taught him how to throw the, the way he used to throw. And yep. he made every free throw I watched him throw that day. Man. But it's so yeah. odd to see that in the modern game. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. It's almost like cringy. It's just like, what is happening? We've gone so far backwards uh, when you see that. I guess me, he was uh, a good player. He transferred to like Florida. He transferred to a bigger school. I think Florida. I, I don't. Well, yeah. Let me ask you about your collection a little bit. You said you know you you've been feeling some burnout, um, and it makes sense to me when I see the stuff you buy. You just bought that man. I saw I just saw this card maybe a couple of videos ago. That beautiful. It was SGC two, um, Pirates all time average leader, right? Hits leader. Hits leader. Average leader. Oh, Paul Wayner. Yes, that card was beautiful. Beautiful card. I don't mean to put you on the spot. You don't have to show it up, but if it's close by, you can grab it. But I can grab I, it if I could step away for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. I will. I'll entertain the chat here. Or the I chat. straighten out my. I was probably crooked on this the whole time because my yeah, cat came good. in and, and knocked knocked my. <laughs> so this is a an obscure, quirky set, uh, but they're they're very very rare. And uh, that's that's kind of what gets my juices flowing. So this is a 1933 Eclipse import. Eclipse and import. Uh, yeah, they're little cartoony cards. But this is the Paul Wayner you were talking about. Beautiful color. I mean, that card's great. So um, yeah. So so I, I have four now. I have the Babe Ruth. Oh okay. Uh, the Jimmy Fox. Oh my goodness. And the lefty Grote. It feels like you got some of the big names out of that uh, out of that collection. I know you said you were trying to get the set. Yeah, those I believe are the three biggest in the in the set. I don't know of a big any other big ones. Um, you know, Paul Wayner, he has the highest batting average in Pittsburgh Pirate history, which is saying something since Honus Wagner played there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something like uh, I don't know, uh, three thirty-five, some somewhere three thirty-six, something like that. Um, so you were just talking about burnout and then, you know, so there's that card. Do you find it difficult? I mean, cause you have to be 
mostly looking into, like you said, rare cards. You said that's what gets your juices flowing. And there may not be, but maybe two or three other people in the hobby looking for that specific card. Right. But I'm guessing they're willing to spend some money. I mean, it, is there, do you feel fatigued from that? Like you find a rare card, oh, this is going to be great. You know, no one knows about this. And then, but just the prices are so high right now and it makes it so hard to win these auctions. You know, it's more like crack. Like baseball cards are like crack sometimes where um, you get that, you know, you get your juices flowing, you find that that rare card and you, and you, you, you grab it up. And then uh, after you have it and you enjoy it a little bit, you put it away. Then what? You have you have like the down until you could go searching for that next one, right? Yep. For the so next it's kind of an up and down thing. It's it's like an immediate gratification, and then you want it again. That's why I say it's kind of like I I joke around. It's like crack because as soon as you buy one, you want that you want another one. There is certainly like um a pleasure with getting something you think that is like rare or undervalued or underappreciated or even properly valued, but just rare, you know, that you appreciate. Yeah. Um, I just got this. Um, so I have this, uh, Gaudi Babe Ruth. This is a Gaudi premium and these oh. are standups. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, tough to find with the standup intact, but I just got a hold of this not so long ago. And this is the American league all-stars and it has, you know, Ooh. Ruth, Gehrig, Connie Mack, Jimmy Fox, just, all of those guys that is amazing uh, from the same set is this is tough is that on the back was that names i'm sorry on the back of the uh photo or the image is that names there written on there uh yeah names yeah yeah here's a here's a card from 1878 i believe it could be the first true baseball card issue ever because the, the cards that they always say are the oldest first cards are really photos. Like there's mm -hmm. that um, Brooklyn Atlantic photo. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they featured that on um, Strange Inheritance. And there's a, a Cincinnati Redlegs. Um, well, actually, it's a, it's a Brooklyn card too, a team photo. But it was issued by a furniture company in Cincinnati. That was like 1868, I believe. And that was always considered to be the oldest card, but it's it's more of a photo. Although I could kind of buy that because it was a premium given by the, the furniture store to sure. customers. So it kind of fits the mold of a card. Yeah. But this is a, this is actually a, a card card. And it's a generic baseball card from overseas, which is fascinating to me because this was uh, from England and um, uh, it was a French company. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, it was the early days of baseball. It wasn't popular overseas. But anyway, yeah. it, it was a biscuit company. A biscuit company? Yeah. I guess they, they were trying to sell to Americans. I don't know, man. That's good advertising by them. And that's in a SGC4. That's a that's a 150-year-old card almost. I know. Gosh, that's amazing. How about this? I, I This is... This is one either the first or second gum card ever produced, and uh, regardless, it was they were produced in the same year. There are two, and uh, nobody seems to know which is what. But they were falsely labeled scraps tobacco, mm. and uh, scrap was a common word for tobacco. So when you see, you know, you'll see like um, something with scrap after it, um, and that scrap was like loose tobacco. So there okay. was no such company as scraps tobacco. It's like saying uh, tobacco, somehow it got tobacco. named that, but this is a, yeah. a Charles Comiskey, 
and these are little die cut cutouts. Whoa, that is sweet. Oh my god. Now these goodness. can be traced to a company in Cincinnati too. There was a guy that did a blog on these. He did a whole bunch of research. But this um turns out that uh it was a gum company. And so this is one of the first or second gum cards ever produced. That card looks like it is in amazing shape. It's amazing and what I like to collect about these old old players from the 1800s, it was it was common to stick them in a in a in a scrapbook and put a little little glue or something and many times you will find them that i mean the glue doesn't take away from anything this is a blank back and it has a little bit of that so it was in a scrapbook oh, but what yeah. happens is it keeps the fronts pristine right so it presents like a, a nine right and uh obviously that knocks the technical grade down but like, uh yeah. But you know, you'll find fours that don't look anywhere near this nice, or maybe even higher fives. So I don't I don't mind it on the really old cards. That was a common thing that they did. And you know me, I'm not a grading junkie. Um this is a guy, uh this is from 1887. And um this is kind of a rare set, and it's probably the first card that used a photo and action shot in the same card. And this is Tip O'Neill. And oh, Tip O'Neill nice. in 1887 won the uh, Triple Crown. Uh, the following year, he won the batting title again. And uh, he has the second highest, um, second highest single season batting average in history. And they went to the championship game. He played for the Browns. They lost to Detroit that year. And then the next year, Detroit uh, went to bunk. And they right. were like a they were like a Pacific coast league until <clears throat> I think 1901 um, when that league joint became the American league. What, what year was that card? 1887. My goodness. That's amazing. I also like to collect there's, there's, there's this, now this is a little nuance and it's, there are collectors that do this. I'm one of them. So in the old days of you'll find tobacco cards with stamps on the back, they call them stamp backs. Mm. And people would put a certain stamp to signify that that was that belonged to their collection, right? And oh. I know when I was a little kid, we used to do this because uh, people would steal each other's cards and they would write their initials on the back so that <clears throat> you know if it ended up in somebody else's collection, you go beat them up. You had to brand it. So I I try to um, bring stamp backs together. So I will buy stamp backs. So I I managed to bring two together, and I found a third one. But I had spent so much money on, on other cards, I, I, I was waiting. I couldn't get it right then and there or didn't want to get it right then and there. Yeah. And it ended up selling. And I, I hope if anybody's watching who has it, they, uh, they might consider selling it to me. So this is a Cap Anson. And uh, I have here Jack Glasscock. If you look up Jack Glasscock's stats, uh, man, I mean, he's like the original Ozzie Smith at shortstop. But these come from the same collector. I don't know if you're going to be able to see this, but they, uh, the collector from Manhattan stamped them from New York. What is the, I mean, we can, I can see the stamp. Hold on. Let me put this. Back. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty faint, even if you're in person, but they, they put a little stamp. So I was able to reunite these two babies. So these are, I, I find it really cool. Like, uh, especially if, if you, I don't know how you can determine who's, you know, whether it was a kid's collection or what, but 
I find it really cool to, to bring um, somebody's old collection from way back at the turn of the century back together. That is amazing to think about. I mean, just think about it for a second. You had a guy sitting somewhere in New York a hundred some years ago, but had these two cards and he liked them so much he put a stamp on them. And here you are, 120 years later, you found them in separate auctions. Who knows? You found one in Seattle and one in Atlanta and they shipped them to you and now you've got them. It's crazy. That is crazy to think. I mean, that's the difference between collecting and investing. You know, that scraps tobacco. As a collector, I could care less that it has some little little spot on the back that makes it a technical, you know, 1.5. I could care less because it's a beautiful card from the 1800s. Yeah. And uh, like collecting these stamps, well, when you collect the stamps, it immediately gives them a low grade automatically because yeah. the grade is technical. Yeah. Uh, they don't even take the looks into account. So, you know, to me as a collector, I love getting that stuff. It has a story to go with it. I also love to collect old uh, postcards that have the writing on them. Like mm -hmm. I have one of Buck Weaver and it's a rare Max Stein postcard. Those are very rare. And he, um, it's, it's like, a, I can't tell if it's a friend or a brother. Sounds like it's a brother um, writing back to uh, his, uh, his brother saying that he misses playing ball with him and he's living by himself and he misses home. And, and it, there's a whole story to go along with his postcard and it has the stamp on it from the era. And it's a little piece of history. And I love to get that stuff. Here's a, a, an 1887 um, uh, Ned Williamson. Now this baby's graded a seven. Uh, but let seven. me tell you something. I don't love it any more than these other ones that are low grade. But this is a very high grade for this issue. And Ned Williamson was the original single season home run champ. And his single season home run mark stood until 1919 when Babe Ruth broke it. And it, he had 27 in the dead ball era. And Babe Ruth broke it with 30. That's amazing. And then what, what team did Ned play for? Oh man. Good question. I think no. uh, what was it? The I white can... stockings? The Good white... question. I gotta I gotta look. I forget. Ned Williamson, right? Ned Williamson. The original the single season home run record. <clears throat> he held that for many years. This is probably the prettiest card ever made, Christy Mathewson. Oh wait, 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 hold on. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a nice card. Yeah, there's a few versions of this. This is the uh, E101. I think there's a Dockman and Sons. It looks identical. You know, the different tobacco companies would, would issue them. I'm not all that into backs um, so much. Like there are people collect the T206 rare backs and, and other issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, but, you know, I just never chase those. Um, I look at the fronts mostly. Here's a uh, Honus Wagner. This is... This is more rare than the T206 Honus Wagner. This is from, um, they, they, they misdate these. Um, after researching, it's, it's got to be 1910. Mm -hmm. um, I always say, because Harry Kovaleski's in this set uh, with Cincinnati, and he only played for Cincinnati in 1910. So it's yeah, okay. either 1910 or it was a multi-year issue. And these, um, what they did was they had a box. You know those boxes with like a handle, the cardboard boxes with the handle? And it was yeah. filled with candy and, and, and jewels and uh -huh. all, all kind of goodies. 
And on the side of the boxes, they put baseball cards. And uh, these, are, these are super rare. I think there's only 16 of these ever graded. And this is a Honus Wagner. Man, and that looks like it's in great shape for what it is. What it you just is. Explained. It's a 5.5. And I've wow. seen the 6. And the 6 has a mark over his face. This 5.5 is actually nicer than the 6. That's, man, that's crazy. And I mean, and dude, the, six, be... the 6 is the highest graded one. Were those hand cut? Yeah, they were hand cut off hand of, cut. Uh, I have several of them. I have uh, Eddie Plank. I, I have a few. Uh, but they were they, they were cut off of uh, they were part of the goodies in this yeah. box, um, and I, I I I stumbled on a picture of it. I have a picture of it saved somewhere. Uh, pretty cool. It's just like like a big box of toys and stuff, and uh, it included baseball cards. That's <clears throat> that's wild. It uh, and a similar thing was a candy issue, and I have the Ty Cobb up in my display, but. Um, these are very, very, very super rare. This is a 1910 uh, orange border. Called orange border because the, the, the candy box was orange and most people left uh, part of the candy box on the oh, around sure. it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, this is the uh, World Champion Pirates. Uh, they had won the World Series in 1909. They were long considered, I think still, one of the greatest uh, teams in history. You know, the 1909 Pirates, the 27 Yankees, they were a number. They were uh, usually on that list. 2017 Astros. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you an interesting fact since you brought up the Astros. So st uh, stealing signals has been around a long time. Oh, and boy. you probably know that Harvey Haddix had, uh, you know, his 12 perfect innings and then lost the game. Sure. Did you know that uh, when Harvey Haddix uh, pitched those 12 perfect innings, the Braves were stealing his signals and later admitted that in the 1990s. What? So that means they knew what pitch was coming and he still threw a perfect game through 12. And they said the only player who refused to accept the signals was Hank Aaron. Mm, that's interesting. He, I mean, he must have been on his game if they, you know, if they know the changeup's coming, the fastball's coming. And I mean, that's wild. Yeah, he basically only threw like a, a fastball and a curve, maybe a changeup. That was it. I think he was like mostly a two a two pitch pitcher, and they still couldn't hit him. That's how in the zone he must have been. I mean, yeah, you have to be so good at that point. And I mean, how do you even steal signals at that point? I mean, what? Well, think about that. He was playing the Milwaukee Braves, one of the best teams at the time. I mean, you have Eddie Matthews, Hank Aaron, Joe Adcock. They had good hitters, and he did that. Man, that's crazy. And I still, I mean, I'm not against, I don't know. People bring it up with the Astros specifically. You know, they talk about, oh, stealing signs is bad. I'm pro stealing signs. You just can't use cameras to do it. Like, I don't care. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, throughout baseball, that was kind of part of the thing. That's why you come up with different signals. You change them in the middle right. of the game. Yeah. You, you know, you try to hide them. I, but, I mean, they took it to another level, you have to admit. Yeah, now, what the Braves did, the Milwaukee Braves, is they used the towel. Uh, there was a guy in the dugout, I guess, and he would raise the towel if it was a curveball and lower it if it was a fastball. Mm. No audio no audio signal when they watch the game back. That's very right. smart. Yeah, they weren't on their iPads uh, watching. Yeah, the Braves. But, you know, that's, that's another thing when we were talking about changing the game is the technology. You can see right away what you did wrong one minute ago. 
you know, and yeah. the old the old timers they didn't have that uh, that luxury. Well, and now they have. I actually hate this. I don't know. Maybe I'm an old man, but the pitchers they have all these sequences in their hats. I hate that crap. And then the guys out in the outfield have all these different things. I guess where they're supposed to stand and stuff. I don't know. It seems yeah. Ridiculous. You know, uh, uh, back in the I guess it was the early two thousands. Um, so you had like Tiger Woods made golf such a famous sport. And uh, they all these psychological coaches came out and part of the psychology, um, the mentalness of being good at golf was getting into a routine. Yeah. So a guy would do, do the exact same thing on the tee box and you'd have to watch him. He do the exact same thing on the green. Well, they started doing that in baseball and it used to drive me crazy. Every pitch, they step out, they flip their bat. Their, no more. Uh, they yeah, glove man. three times, glove three times, get back in, ball. Three times, three times. I'm like, this is annoying, man. Yes. Yeah. I that used to drive that. me crazy. It's just slowed the game down so much. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the guy to me, the get the poster child for that's Nomar Garcia Para, man. He'd go up there and he'd do his wrist a thousand times, man. That was crazy. Let me let me ask you this, John. You know, we've had a pretty great discussion here. And, you know, we talked about it early on. We, you know, one of the first people on the channel, and it's because I admired your passion for collecting. And I know that I'm a collector and I know that I'm on this journey trying to figure out how to collect. Um, you are much more advanced in your journey, not from an age standpoint, but from an actual collection standpoint. What is it? What is your end game for your collection? What is it that you hope your collection? you know i is or will be or it brings to you you know well i think you know collecting is more of a journey than a destination to use an old cliche that's fair yeah in that you know i mean is there going to be something that i get and i say okay i'm done i'm not going to collect anymore. yeah no no i doubt it <laughs> what my main goal is to get at least one card from every vintage set Def vintage like pre-72 or what are we what's vintage 372 pre-1972 oh, pre well yeah basically up to about 1980 1980 was always considered um back in the day that was always the cutoff mm. for vintage but now that we're in 2021 i mean you know 1995 is vintage at this point so it's all it's all up to what you say it is right like i don't let I don't let the industry or Beckett dictate to me, you know, what I collect or what I consider something. Um, I always had this argument over rookie cards. Like they're so particular about their definition. Well, I mean, I, do we have to abide by that definition? Like if yeah. I have a, a Robin Yount hostess card, it's a rookie card to me. I don't care, you know, if Beckett says it is or whatever publication says it is. Like I don't, you know what I mean? So yeah. I have, you know, my own thing. But I think um, basically up to about 1980. But, I, you know, all the vintage years, you know, 1800s, early 1900s, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty far along, actually. I mean, there's a, there's a number of sets I need, and there's certainly some rare ones that are going to be challenging, but I'm, I'm pretty far along. I have, um, like you, uh, let me show you this before, before you kick me off, because I, I keep talking. Um, let's see here. Like uh, Briggs Meats, here's a Willie Mays. Probably his rarest card, along with the 1964 Gold Meadow uh, Dairy. That card is amazing. That is a great picture. Yeah, so there's only like a handful of these. You're not going to find many. Um, 
you know, cards like uh, like this. This is that actually, if you go onto PSA's website, you'll see this card. It's the only one they ever graded. So it's a Walter Johnson. This is the uh, 1922 W575-1. Now these are these are rare. Here's the George Sisler, a very underrated player. These are really rare. These are extra rare, and these are rare, but not quite as rare as the ones. And this is the two, and this is a, a probably a Ty Cobb you've never seen before because these are pretty pretty obscure. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that before. But very low pop. Man, I really like those cards. Those are I feel like really great images, great pictures. Really nice. Yeah, this was in the era, you know, in the 20s, they were almost all cutouts and almost all black and whites, except for the colorful strip cards, right? The cartoony strip cards, which yeah. I love those too. Yeah. But this no. is what you're going to find in the 20s. You know, they didn't make a lot of cards uh, in the 20s. So I guess paper was short after the war or during the war, and you don't you don't find a whole lot. That That kind of makes sense. I mean, the same thing happened in World War II, right? I mean, after, uh, you know, you didn't have a whole lot, a whole lot back then. And then, um, you know, you hit the 50s and boom, there are cards coming out everywhere. Late 40s started. Do you have, you know, you show a lot of, and yeah, you show a lot of baseball, right? You show so much baseball and stuff. Um, I mean, obviously you have a phenomenal baseball collection. I mean, there's no question. Do you have a lot of old football stuff too? Is that limited to Steelers or do you do a lot of football no, stuff? No, I, I have a lot of old football. I don't have too much laying around, but I'd I like to, uh, uh, I, I keep, well, here, I have this one too. I keep guys like this laying around. Tony Canadeo, really great running back for the Packers. Man. I think it, it he he missed all kind of years for military service. So um, it's it's kind of ridiculous, his stats knowing that he missed all those years. I think he yeah. retired. I think when he retired, he was the third all-time leading rusher. Tony Canadale, fellow Italian. I got to collect him. And this guy, you want to talk about a beast? Uh, he has the highest per yard, uh, yards per carry in history at 5.7. And that's Big Marion Motley. Marion Motley. Oh, that's a beautiful. Is that 53 Bowman? Yeah, is that 53? I don't even. You know, I know baseball just by looking at it, what year it is. And football, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I, no, that's fair. And I mean, it, I am with, the, yeah. you know, the 70s and the, and, and the 60s. But when it's the, the older ones. Well, I love that set. I have, a, I have the Bobby Lane from that set. And, I mean, the pictures on that set are just so good. Uh, they're so, so well done. The Bobby Lane, the, the Leaf rookie card, man, I want that. And it's always been extra pricey. And it's it's funny to me because I don't even think young people, you know, I don't think modern collectors even know who he is. Sweet. <laughs> I'm jealous I bought of that this, one. man. I couldn't I couldn't pass it up. It's a one because it's got like a bad corner, but man, the image and the the uh, the color so good, and the back's well centered too. Which I'm like you, I don't care for the backs that much, but I do like that you get all the print on the back of the card. I do like that. So yeah. Yeah, I, I have a whole box sitting right here of Leafs. Yeah, man, that's sweet. Yeah, this is one of my, this is, honestly, this Bobby Lane is what set me down the path for vintage football because I saw this card. I, I Man, I paid like 60 bucks for it, I think, or something. You're and kidding I was me. Just like, no, it was, it was at an auction. This is over a year ago. It was at an auction, 
And I was just like, this seems so cheap. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a full year ago. And I was just like, who is this guy? You know, and I started looking him up, you know, because I, I knew I like old football, but I didn't know that much about it. And that led me, you know, learning about Bobby Lane, who's freaking amazing. One of the best. I mean, he's ridiculous. Yeah, he was yeah. a good quarterback. He played for my Steelers. And my, uh, my dad he always jokes around that uh, he couldn't play sober. He could only play drunk. Yep, yep, yeah. And I, I don't put, know, there's some kind of story where he had a bad game and uh, somebody told him to drink. <laughs> yeah, he was known for being a party in full. And, uh, the I'm blonde laughing. bomber. Yep, yeah, and that's it's printed on the leaf card, blonde. Yeah, bomber. that's what makes that card so cool. I love the cards that include the nicknames. It's just, yeah. uh, I don't know, they're extra special to me. I also collect Japanese cards. I just got this Pepsi disc not so long ago, Sadaharuo. Oh, man, look at that. That's a great image. That's a great a disc. I don't know. Yeah, I got, uh, good, I got but... two of these. That's a small one. They made these big ones, too. That's the small one? My goodness. Holy smokes. <laughs> that thing is humongous. What would that even yeah, that, come that's, out that's of? That's pretty big there. I collect things like these, old stand-ups, and uh, I found one years ago when I was young. I don't know where they came from or anything. I have it out of the package, but I found this in the package, so I picked it up. You can get these pretty uh, inexpensively if you can find them. That so I picked up the Lynn Swan, who was my favorite football player growing up, and Terry Bradshaw. Man, those are awesome. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Still in the package. Who made those? Um, they're called Star Standouts. They're uh, licensed by the NFL. Um, uh, Star Standouts Inc. Out of Pittsburgh, PA. There you go. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's like a lot that. of oddball stuff out there that's so cool, and you find. I, how do you find all this oddball stuff? I mean, because you find the wildest stuff, man. You know what? It's just, it's just years of shopping, really. Like years of looking around, reading, um, you know, I read Beckett Vintage and they always feature different uh, card sets and uh, they'll highlight like sometimes a great player. They'll highlight all their 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 rare cards. Um, I read the the sports collectors um, um, standard catalog, mm. the standard catalog of baseball cards. I'll just read that. It always gets me into trouble, too, because after five minutes, I'm already on eBay trying to see uh, what what something goes for you know and uh psa's uh, magazine they always feature uh, great sets that one always frustrates me though because they only show cards in tens and nines which is like oh yeah when you when you read their magazine it's like 1952 set they're all nines and tens you're like nah. <laughs> you know it just makes it seem like anything you have uh sucks right yeah because it yep. can never compare to that i i know how you feel somebody in the chat uh, comments one time called me an emotional buyer and they're, 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 what they were saying was like i have people on and we talk about cards and then i can guarantee you in the next mail day i bought some crap that they talked about because i'm like yeah <laughs> you know they got me jazzed up for it and i'm gonna go buy it now you did know, you like, get the rusty stop 63 pepsi i did not i tell you what though i did look at it i looked for it and i, and I did find it but I, I did not pick it i didn't pick it up though i did look at it though well you know why and i'll tell you why because i want the um is it oh man the name goes away from me we talked about him when we first talked he was the first player to play uh, he was the first player to get called up from the minors 
He went, you know, he was a pitcher. Was it Dizzy Dean, pitcher for the Cardinals? Dizzy Dean? No. Yeah, I think it's Dizzy what, Dean. I think it's he was Dizzy the first Dean. player. What? So, you know, we, and everyone forgive me for this, but the first time you and I talked, I was well read on this history. But the first team to have a minor league team that fed them was, was the Cardinals. And oh. The team that fed the Cardinals was the Houston, then called Buffs, the Buffaloes, the Buffs. And um, there's a couple of great players that played for the Houston Buffs. Uh, Tris Speaker played for the Houston Buffs. That's another guy that I want in my collection. Uh, but then I think Dizzy Dean. Uh, and, you know, Tris Speaker was before, before there was a, you know, it was a minor league team. And then I think Dizzy Dean was the first guy to get called up from the minor league team, purchased rights by the major league team and, you know, to play. I think that's right. <laughs> but Tris Speaker didn't play for St. Louis. No, 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 not Tris Speaker, Dizzy Dean. Um, oh. It was, so when did Dizzy, Dizzy Dean, you know, the Cardinals and the Buffs came into an agreement like two years before Dizzy Dean started, you know, in the professionals. Oh, so I got before you. Before that, it was just like it's independent, you know, a team. And then uh, he made his I, way over to Boston. Trish Speaker's very underrated player. I mean, one of the greatest players in baseball history. I, I, I can't remember if I showed you this. This is a Cuban issue, I believe, from 1915. Um, you'll see this image on later cards, uh, but this is a, a Cuban. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty rare, too. <laughs> People, people uh, make fun of me because I always say it's rare, it's rare, it's rare. Every card I show is rare. You only buy rare stuff. But, oh, uh, wow. No, yeah, I it's a pretty, uh, pretty unique, um, cool image. Like I said, they, they used this image again, I think, in the 20s. But you can see it's uh, like Havana. Um, it's like, I think these are given with cigars. Sure. Yeah, Tris. I tried to find one for Tris during his playing career. It's not easy to do. There's only a couple. They're the big, you know, like uh, painted, you know, uh, lots of color stuff. Um, I haven't found one that I wanted to pull the trigger on yet. There was one for like 260, but I just like, I'm like, I don't know if I want that one to be the one in my collection because I'm just going to buy one Tris speaker. So yeah, I just haven't made up my mind yet. But I have a rare one uh, somewhere over there. It's like only three graded. You got a lot of rare ones over there, John. <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my thing. You know, everybody everybody pays uh, you know, $15,000 for the Babe Ruths, 33 Gaudis, and then I get these more rare Babe Ruths. Like this is a 1926 Spalding. Good. Uh, for a fraction. This is a coupon they came with. Now, this was a set that was unknown until 1990, I believe, they discovered them. And wow. then there was a second find um like 2 years later, 2 or 3 years later. Uh, but this was a set that super, super rare. A, a few more have surfaced since, but nobody even knew it existed. That's so crazy. And then this is a, I always like the overseas issues. This is one of my favorite Babe Ruth cards. I, although there's so many that I love, but this is the, um, oh, how do you pronounce this? Ab, Abdullah, 1932 Abdullah. And this is, uh, I believe, uh, from Germany. Man, that is great. 1932? Yeah, not uh not too easy to find. You know, let me grab let me grab. I found I found this at a card show in in San Antonio. 
I remember I said, how much is that? And he said, a hundred bucks. I'm like, I, I know I'm buying this card. This is 1936 Jesse Owens. And it's in, it's from Germany. Oh yeah. I have that. Is that, yeah, uh, and, which, uh, what, which, uh, is that, that's not Sinella. That's the other one, right? The, uh, no. Mew Helen Frank. I don't know, man. The series. Oh, that's right. He's not in the Sinella set. I've, yeah, I, I just picked up uh they 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 made four of them in that set. I just picked up all four. Did you? Actually not that long ago. It, what I like because I didn't get this out to just brag, but the Germany man, I was like, man, the color on this card is freaking amazing. For this card to almost be 100 years old to be made in, you know, pre-war. Oh, I think I think I'm thinking of a different set with him. Show that again. Oh, I can't get that. It's yeah, that's the one with him running. Mullen, yeah, yeah, he's running. Right I, I'm here. sorry, I'm just having a hard time. Yeah, yeah, I had I picked that up years and years ago, and I mean, you used to be able to get the the non baseball like the off sports like that for yeah. dirt cheap, and I, I I'm sure I didn't pay a whole lot for that. Joe, even like Joe Lewis boxers, I just got this. Um, the only the only uh, heavyweight champion undefeated in history, Rocky Marciano. Man, this is a beautiful 1.5, man. This is a little tiny mark. Uh, this card, even in a four and five, it doesn't look good. I've seen mm. them at sixes that don't look good. This one's beautiful. Yeah, it looks great. That's man. such a great card. And you know, you just don't hear about boxing anymore. Everything's MMA. And I got another chick gandal here. I had the I had a different color version of this, but these are 19, um, what are they, 1914? And they call them blankets, like a napkin. They're 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 felt blankets. Wow. They're they're cloth blankets, and I have a I ha actually have a package that came in. It was a metal tin, and these would they would fold up and go in this tin, and you will routinely see them with the fold marks still in them. Most of them are flat. If they were laid flat, the folds went away over time, but sometimes you actually see some faint lines where they were folded. And they were called blankets because uh, women used to sew them together for their kids and make a blanket out of them. Oh. And sometimes you'll find a few stitches still in some. And that's another reason I got this. I have the Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, um, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and I have another Chick Gandle. But none of the ones I had had stitches, but this does. And I actually wanted that uh, because this is part of the history of these. If you can Man, see those so little crazy. stitch marks. That's so cool. So someone, you know, knitted that into a quilt. Yeah, I didn't even take it out of the package yet, so this is a little blurry. No, but it's all uh, right. man, I have a lot of these in the 1916 Ferguson Bakeries too. I have uh, the Buck Weaver, I have the Wally Pip, and I have the Honus Wagner in that. That's those are really cool. They're they're like pennants that. Man, I should go get some to show you. I don't have any, any laying around. But they're like upside down pennants, and they have a picture of the player and their name running down. Oh, okay. And, and the Honus Wagner is a really, really nice image. And, 1916? And the Buck Weaver is real nice, too. You said 1916? Yes, Ferguson Bakery. Ferguson Baker. That's <clears> – you know, you, you got so many cards, John. When, when you're showing off – when I go watch a John Mangini, the Mangini Collection video, are you is a lot of that stuff stuff you've just recently picked up or is it stuff you just have lying around i mean wh wh how do you decide i'm just going to show off you know i got eight thousand gems here let me just show off these three today you know how, how does that come to you 
Well, it's a combination of both. Um, I, I, I mean, I like to do it when I get new cards, um, especially something special. And then that might spark me to, rather than just show the pickup, like show the whole set or all the cards from that set that I have. Yeah, yeah. And then I have cards laying around and I'll change out displays. And so if they've been in a display and, and I change it out, now I have an opportunity to show the cards that were in a display that I never showed before. Um, and sometimes I'll just go back and, and show old cards that I haven't looked through in a while because uh, I want to look through them. And I'll be like, oh, I need to do a video on this. So yeah. uh, like, to, if you go back, way back in my channel, like I showed just about every set made. But you know, when I started out and only had 30 subscribers or 100 subscribers, you know, nobody ever goes and looks at old videos anymore when you post them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, I will reshow them um now that i have more subscribers so yeah that's probably pretty smart because I, I actually did go back and watch some of your old stuff especially when i first had you on especially then because i wanted to see all your stuff i watched it all and like you're 100 right though people don't go back and look and because like i have some stuff i was just going through cleaning it out and i'm like man did i have i showed this off before yet or not i'm like i don't remember you know and it's really you know minuscule stuff it's not like some big brag thing you know and i'm just like ah, who cares you know i just show it and you know people like it or they won't you know it is what it is yeah i mean i have like over a hundred thousand cards i have um pretty much i have every key rookie card every rookie card from 1954 on with the exception of the floating head pete rose that's the only one I, last one i need never really wanted to spend the money on it because i never liked the card although it's been growing on me lately uh, but I have the two of two of the 64s, which is, in my opinion, a nicer card. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, um, it wasn't until the 1985 Don Mattingly that the rookie card became a thing. And so growing up, you didn't want those those rookie cards because they didn't look good. And there was no such thing as a rookie card, per se. It wasn't called that. There wasn't extra value put on it. Um, that wasn't until the 80s that that happened. So. How? I'm completely oblivious to this. How did that happen? How did Don Mattingly, 85 tops, become the rookie card? He was just, like, when he came up, he was the next Mickey Mantle, right? And a very, I mean, obviously an awesome ball player. Um, and he was just so big, and card collecting had become really popular. And I don't know who made this up. I don't know if somebody just made it up or what, but everybody was chasing. That was the first rookie card people chased out of the packs. And then the, the second really big one was uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and that upper deck. But everybody was chasing that Don Mattingly, and that's, that's when the rookie card craze began. That's interesting. You know, it, it's funny, too, because you say Mattingly. I know that card. I can think of it. You say Griffey. I know that card. I can think of it. What was the next? What's the next card people chase out of packs? I'm trying to think. I mean, there's like players. Now it's players. You chase players. Well, you know, starting like in 1990, you didn't have to chase anything. Everything was so easy. You got 12, 20 of them. <laughs> you didn't have to really chase cards after that until the 90s when they started doing all the uh, special inserts and, uh, yeah. you know, like the selects and uh, refractors and all that kind of stuff. But um, in the early 90s, I mean, you really didn't have to chase anything. But like, you know, I was just talking to uh, someone last night. I was saying, you know, people don't realize that, like, the 1980 Ricky Henderson rookie, nobody was chasing that until after the rookie card craze. And then you're like, oh, 
this is Ricky Henderson's and everybody went back to see if they had them. Oh. And I went back through my cards. I had nine of them. And uh, <laughs> I sold eight of them and kept one. I have it up in a display. Oh, man. I kept the sharpest one and sent it for grading. There you go. So, uh, yeah, I had nine of them. I, I kind of wish I had them all back because I had bought a ton of cards that year. I've, but like I said, that wasn't something you chased at the time. Right. And then like immediately the year after 85, you know, 86, were people chasing rookies out of packs? Well, yeah, 86. And you had like Barry Bonds, Jose Canseco, uh, Bo Jackson. Um, well, 85 was also Mark McGuire, that USA card. So, yeah, we were we were chasing cards back then. All of a sudden we were chasing everything. But the, the more fun thing was the big players like the 78 Eddie Murray. And the, like I said, the 80 Ricky Henderson, and then you go back to the older players. What what we started doing, I remember George Foster, for instance, uh, Steve Garvey, those kinds of guys, Rod Carew. You start looking back in your collection to see if you have the rookie card. Yeah, Once yeah. you First, it was a learning curve to figure out which one was the rookie card, right? And yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember the 1971 Steve Garvey rookie card was one of the hottest cards when I was growing up. Like, that was one of the hottest cards you could have. You had to trade a lot to get it. And what was it like? What was it like before '85? What the hell were people doing? What, what, what cards? You just you collected like uh, you put sets together and you collected the cards that you liked. Like, you know, for me, I I I never I ended up with uh, I don't have a '63 Willie Mays or a '63 Hank Aaron. I just never liked the look of them, so I never bought them. You bought the cards, you know, you couldn't have them all. And back then, you didn't have eBay. It's not like you had a choice. You couldn't say, I want this and go find it right away. So I would go to flea markets and that's pretty much the only place I could find anything. And so if it was an old vintage card and it was a player I liked or a card that looked good to me, I bought it, you know, and that's just the way it was. I remember I passed up the 1956 Topps Mickey Mantle so many times for, you know, I could have bought it in the teens, maybe under 10 bucks oh. back in the day. But I just never thought it was a good looking card. So I never picked it up. And there were other cards like that. And some of those ones I never liked the look of became very expensive cards, you know? <laughs> Unfortunately. What a novel idea. Just buy the cards you like. Who would have thought, you know, that's something you could do? I still do that now. Um, with the exception of new cards. I mean, it's just like if you, even though if you don't collect for the value, you still want them to have some value, right? And yeah. I mean, if you buy a, a modern card and it's not a rookie and it's not a, a you know a super short print or a special refractor or a, a patch or an auto, like it doesn't matter. People throw them away. They'll open the packs, take the hits, and throw the rest of the cards away. Uh, like you have a, a 2020 Lamar Jackson, it's just never going to be worth even a tiny fraction of what his 2019 card is going to be worth, right? Is that wait, or is it 18? 18, 2018. 18. So if you have a 2019, nobody cares. Yeah. You know, you have the 2018 Prism and it's going to go someday for thousands. And, uh, you know, the 2019, nobody will even care about. Right. So un until it gets so expensive. And this is what happened with uh, Michael Jordan and with uh, Tom Brady, because their second year cards, you couldn't give away before. They were worth nothing. Uh, when I say you couldn't give them away, I mean, they just never had any value whatsoever. Right, yeah. And now Michael Jordan's second-year card went through the roof, and Tom Brady's second- and third-year cards are going through the roof because you can't afford, you know, many people can't afford his main right. card. So now they're going to the other cards. 
Yep. And uh, so when those cards get really super expensive, that's what happens. I remember a few years ago, I used to pick up a stack of Mike Trout. I was really high on Mike Trout from day one. I thought he was the best player in baseball. And I'm, I'm buying his cards up and they're not going up in value. I'm buying stacks for like 12 bucks and uh, they're just not moving. And then all of a sudden, bam, uh, they take off. And you yeah. could buy his rookie card in a, a 10 for like 30 bucks, 36 bucks. And uh, I, I had bought some as kind of uh, investment. I, what, what I did was I, I bought two for a cheap price and I planned on selling one and just getting my money back. And then I'd, I'd be able to buy a card for free. That's what I used to do. Yeah, I, I used to buy more than one. So I still kind of do that if I'm high on a prospect and I, I want the rookie card. Like you, you have a Wonder Franco. You can find guys that'll, you know, that are selling lots of them. And why not? Uh, if it takes off, uh, you know, you have five of them. You sell four and have one. If you're into grading, you can send them all out and yeah. uh, keep the highest graded or depending on your collecting taste, maybe sell the highest graded and keep the lower one because nobody can tell the difference between the nine and the 10 anyway. Yeah, Otherwise, they I, wouldn't even send the nines in. I agree with that. I man, I remember back in the day, you you you'd buy a, a what they call an investor's lot. Now you'd get five of the same card, and that card goes for ten dollars. And you probably bought that lot for forty five bucks, a little bit under rate. But now they call them investor lots, and they go for instead of going for fifty dollars, they go for sixty dollars for five cards. People people are paying a premium to get multiple cards in one lot. And it is blowing my mind. I'm like, what is happening? This world is upside down right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a it's, different, different collecting world. It is so different. And then, you know, just to your point about the second year and third year, when I grew up in the hobby, I grew up kind of really in a bubble, me and my friend and his dad. And I mean, we read Beckett magazine. That was how we understood what was going on, you know? Um, but I, like, I liked, veteran cards i liked guys their second year and their third i thought that was interesting i like to collect cards from guys mvp years from their super bowl years whatever and that that did well for brady thank god you know it paid off for one guy you know but for everyone else it, it hasn't done anything well i'm the same way if it was a really good looking card i wanted to have it if it, if it was uh yeah like a year they did something special like you know like a 67 yaz when he got the triple crown or something like that um but you know it's 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 different. But here's the, here's one one warning I will give everybody before they throw those cards away or uh, dismiss things is remember this: at one time, uh, an auto, autographing a card devalued it, and you had a hard time even selling it to a dealer. And now that same autograph is worth a fortune, right? Yeah. Like if you. If Hank Aaron autographed his 54 tops back in the 1970s, people weren't that into it. They considered to deface the card. It was more about the card. Yep. And look how that's changed. So if you discarded the, the my point is that, um, you know, hobby goes around sometimes, things, things change, and things that weren't worth anything yesterday all of a sudden become real popular. Yep. You know, like that, uh, is it 2010? Or 2008, that uh, LeBron Kobe card. It's a Kobe card. Oh, wait, LeBron 2008. Guarding yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, that was a $1 card five years ago, right? And now look at it because it's a cool card. And yep. I, I actually think that's great that a card is becoming valuable just because it's a cool card, not because it's 
limited printed or it's a rookie card. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's great. I, I wish there were more cards. Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, in my opinion, one of the best, if you look at how the hobby has, well, I guess if, if, as, as you look at things that happen to the hobby, I think the 08 Tops, Tops Chrome, Kobe, LeBron is one of the best things because that's people saying this was a well-made card and I love it. So I want it. And it became. Yeah, great, that one perfect. where he's like this too. Yeah, that's 08 LeBron. That's the chalk toss. Yeah, yeah so you have that. Game. I have them sitting over there. I have that and the Kobe, the one with Kobe. They're cool. I'm kicking cards. myself for not the, having the Kevin Durant like, from that set's uh, really cool looking too. Yes, I love the Durant. No one talks about that card. I love the Durant. And the Durant, if you get it in a tops, it says Sonics, but in the tops Chrome, it says Thunder. So that's pretty cool too. Oh, I didn't know that. I bought that. Uh, I think uh, I got a PSA 10 of it years ago for like six bucks or something. Oh my goodness. Ridiculous. I might not even have paid that much. Oh, I, I, you man. know, the funny thing about grading is, um, you know, I've always found it back before the boom, right? The, the, the grading cost more than if you sold the damn card. And it never made sense to me to send all these cards out because right. it cost me a fortune. And even if I wanted to sell them, I'm not going to make any money, uh, profit on them. Right. Uh, you go on to uh, four sharp corners and they're selling, you know, PSA tens all day for eight bucks. Yep. But you can't even get it graded for that. Nope. So it was always like uh, when you'd see these deals, it was like people that got it graded regretted it or it, it, they, they, they thought it was going to be worth more than it was. And then they end up just almost giving it away. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I figured out that, you know, if to calculate it to grade all my cards because I have, you know, raw cards from when I was a child on. And uh, I actually prefer raw, but uh, it cost me like a million dollars to grade them all. And that was before this boom. That was before it cost all this money. Now, I mean, to grade them all would be like a million dollars. What's the point? What What yeah. is the point? Especially, I mean, if it's in your collection, it really, to me, <clears throat> there's no and, point. And, and, and the other thing, I, I, you know, that gets really expensive is if you're competing, you, you know, for those registries. Yes. And you want to have like the top, like, let's say you just take a 1978 Topps baseball set. You want to have the top registry. Man, what's it going to cost you? The, the set's worth what? A hundred bucks? That's going to yeah. cost you ten thousand to grade them? It's freaking ridiculous! It, it doesn't make any sense. No, it's crazy. I never really understood. Or I mean, I never really understood the registry thing. I guess it's like a game. I'm better than you, or something. I don't know, but I don't know. I don't really know how do they work because I guess I could understand saying I have the best 1978 top set. Yeah, you know, I can but, definitely understand it. I, yeah. I'm just not willing to pay for it yeah no you know what yeah, i mean it's I so expensive or you have the best collection but i'll tell you this if you're number one on there your collection is probably going to sell at auction for a, a heck of a lot of money right if you have That's the number true. one number one psa graded 1975 top set or whatever it is it's probably going to go for a lot on auction you you know you shouldn't grade any of your cards until a grader is willing to put the Mangini collection on the label. That needs. Well, to you know what? I I wanted that years ago, even before I called I had a YouTube channel or called it that officially. Um, I just uh, yeah, I, I really wanted it when the first time that I I got a card and I saw that a collector's name was on it. I'm like, man, if they put my name on it, I might spend that million dollars. You know? Yep. <laughs> I might do it. That's. You know, I'm chasing that ghost, man. That's what I want out of this. I want PSA to put Sports Cards Anonymous collection on a holder. Man, if they did that, I arrived. Man, I did it. I collected well. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, now you hit on another little facet of the hobby that 
becomes a more important than condition too. We were talking about the stamp backs earlier, and that is the famous collectors. Like yep. you have a Jefferson Burdick yep. from the Jefferson Burdick co collection. You know, do you really care about the condition all that much? Like I just got, uh, I just got several cards from Eddie Stanky's personal collection. They were his cards of himself. And uh, do I care the condition as much? No, no, because of the uh, providence of it coming from Eddie Stanky's collection. I got a card from Sam Musial's collection, and you know those those are those are extra special. I have uh, one of the cards from the Black Swamp Find, and you know it's what's famous. the Black? En enlighten me. What is the Black Swamp Find? Oh man, I did a video on it because I was so excited to get it. There was a, a family, and their the their father died. His father or grandfather, they were on uh, Strange Inheritance, and he was he owned a little candy store, and mm -hmm. in his in his uh, or some sort of store, and in his uh, attic they they stumbled on a box, and it was loaded to the hilt with old tobacco cards, uh, hey. these samples I guess that they gave him, all in pristine condition, and just stacks of them. They had like all these different Honus Wagners, Ty Cobb, everybody, man, and. Uh, so PSA graded them, and then they, um, some of them went off to SGC, and they uh, auctioned them off at the national one year. And I think they were a little underhanded about it, uh, because you know how people will pay based on pop report. Yeah. Right. Well, there were no nines and tens of these cards, and now all of a sudden there's a bunch of them. And so you're bidding on a nine, thinking that's the only one that's available, you know, ever graded. And as soon as you buy it, they turn around and sell another one and another one. Oh, and another yeah. One. And I thought that was a little underhanded the way they, I, I mean, see. I get it. If you sold them all at once, you wouldn't get your money. Yeah. So they, they trickled them out. But I, that pop report's important. And, uh, you know, there's some, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll buy a card and you'll be like, oh, there's only a pop of five. And a year later, there's a pop of 10, you know, because there's still cards that many people haven't sent in for grading yet. So. That pop thing, um, and then you have the reverse too, uh, where people will crack them and resend them, and that makes it look like there's more graded than there actually are. Yep. And I know PSA is working on trying to digitally, you know, fingerprint the cards they grade and stuff. I don't know if they if that's able to be successful or not. I mean, how how would you know if you got one ten over another ten, for instance? Well, or a digital signature. If they if they're both tens, they should look identical. I like that you brought up. Um... The fingerprinting of cards because i think it's pretty interesting and it might relay more to some of the older cards but i think the figure fingerprinting of cards could be pretty interesting from like a provenance standpoint where you can really say like this is the card and this is its journey and like yeah. if we could really uniquely identify every single card i think that would be awesome now obviously we wouldn't do it for every single card but i think for you know collection pieces i think that would be really cool and i think adding provenance to the hobby i think would be really cool yeah I mean, cause like, I mean, what you, sh I mean, probably the stuff that you showed me today that I thought was the coolest was the stuff you had stamped from, you know, 1902, the Manhattan collect collection. I'm like, that is so cool, man. I mean, yeah, it's fun. I have a, I have a standard caramel, uh, uh, Honus Wagner that has a little a, I'm trying to find other a's. And then I have a, a Cracker Jack, uh, Johnny Evers, uh, that has an O and I I've seen that O before, but it was before I had one. And so uh, I, I, I'm, on, I've, I'm always on the lookout for those, those two stamps in particular. I think uh, 
I think instead of having PSA put Sports Cards Anonymous, on, I'm just going to get a stamp. Sports Cards Anonymous. I'm just going <laughs> to stamp in the back of my car. There you go. <laughs> oh, my God. People would scream. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be good. All right, John, it's been a pleasure. I got one more question for you before we go here. Um, you have a channel. You're showing off all these cards. You've been doing this for a long, long time. I just mean that relative to people in the hobby, you know, like two years, right? How has social media, forget the boom, how has social media the ability to show off your collection versus it kind of just being in your room that, you, that you're in, right? And just showing it off to the random person, guest, friend that came through your house. How has social media enhanced or detracted from your collecting experience? I have nothing but positive, positive experiences. You know, I always, I'm an only child and I grew up in the country. Uh, in farmland, and uh, I only had a couple neighbor kids, and we would go and collect cards, and they were the only ones that even knew I collected cards, and my family, my immediate family, and um, so I always collected in a pretty much obscurity by myself. Like everything I learned about cards was just from either personal experience or reading it in a magazine, you know, the old baseball cards magazine, or learning about it that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when bait, when when eBay came out, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that I had access to all these great cards I, I used to see in books that I dreamt about finding one day. And uh, I started scooping them up. But, uh, you know, when social media came around, uh, what I did was I, I put my I wanted to kind of document all my cards and I, I made a page on Facebook and I, I have all my cards and albums. And you can see like every card I have. And I started uh, joining Facebook groups and buying and, and doing a, selling off some doubles. And then uh, I made a video and as an afterthought, threw it on YouTube. And uh, now I'm big, you know, I do more on YouTube than I still do, you know, I still do the Facebook, but then YouTube has been so much fun to show off. Um, it's just so much more interactive and to meet so many other great collectors and to be able to share what I have and ask questions and see what other people have. And then, of course, the relationships, you know, I went down to Tampa, saw a bunch of YouTubers and uh, Lou, Lou Rock TV is coming here in like a week and a half. Or he's going to be uh, up in my room and uh, B Roth 6 is coming uh, at the end of December and he's going to do, you know, have a tour in my room. And um, so that's that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly texting uh, with YouTubers and yeah. we're always sharing cards and asking questions. And is this a good deal? And. Um, so yeah, nothing but positiveness. Yeah, I feel you there. I mean, growing up, kind of what I call the dead era, you know, in sports cars from you know 1999 onward. It's like there was no community. You know, no one knew. My best friend knew I collected, and I collected with him and his dad. The three of us collected, and that was it, man. I mean, I didn't know. Like, I knew I met people at the Houston Card Show. Like, I made some relationships there, but that was twice a year when they had the show that I saw them. And so outside of those interactions, I never saw or talked to anyone about cards. You know, just doing it on my own. Yeah. Now you have this and it's like, I'm surrounded by people that want to talk about this, you know, all the time. And they have, you know, I mean, half of you guys are sleuths. I mean, all y'all out there finding all this different stuff out. There. It's amazing the stuff people can find. I well, mean, back at, you know, back in the day when they first started having card shops, you know, you'd just go hang out. You'd, you'd meet other collectors there and you could at least talk cards. And then back then, it was, set collecting was a big deal. I mean, you yeah. can't possibly set collect today. 
um, if you want to have like the whole complete set, right? There's limited editions, there's refractors, there's rainbows, there's signatures, yeah, yeah. there's this, there's that. You can't put a whole set together. I mean, you, and nobody wants just a base set. That's no fun. I mean, some people probably do, but I mean, that's just not as much fun as putting all the others together. Yeah. And so back then, you know, you just had the basic sets and the stores would have just boxes lined up with uh, singles and you'd go through, you'd have your, your want list, what you needed to complete the set. And you'd spend hours there just going through cards and trying to put as many as, get as many of the cards you needed as possible. It was, it was fun. It was a good time. Yeah, and it wasn't, I mean, those cards were like, you know, sometimes a nickel, a piece, a petty, a piece, a quarter, a piece. Right, yeah. <clears throat> and see, as, as I was coming in, that was fading out because I come in in 99 and then my local card shop by 02 had transitioned from a sports card shop to a Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh shop. So, and I, then I no longer had a shop, you know, so I had three years where I had a card shop and then that was it. Yeah. But then eBay came around I had eBay. All right. I promised last question. I meant, I forgot. I wanted to ask you about this. When you turn the lights off in that room, what's up with the ghost? You got all these ghosts in there, man. Yeah. So I've been compiling a uh, video. Uh, I think I'm going to do a little intro and I'm going to um, show you. I've been, I've been. So what's odd is I have these things. They look like baseballs. They look transparent. Um, sometimes they seem to vanish and they, they go up. Now, people are telling me they're dust mites or they're bugs. But, I mean, this, they're happening with the door closed, nothing going on. And if they're dust mites, why do they only happen like once every two weeks or once every week? Why, like the way that they come down, they would be coming all the time, uh, I would think. So here's the interesting thing. I, my wife bought me this, and I had to go away to work and, and live away during the week for a while. And, and she bought me this camera so I could keep an eye on my card room. and. Uh, I had this. This is an old press photo of Hack Wilson uh, sitting over here on the ground. And I also had picked up this T205 uh, Buck Herzog. And I think that might be the uh, card that, that came in haunted. It's one of these, I, I think. Because uh, so I put on the camera and I'm at work and I'm showing my coworkers, I'm freaking out. So this uh, these balls of light are coming from this picture down here and like over my bats like it's almost like ghost field of dreams where like there's little baseballs going up and then and then they start coming all over the place and i'm literally freaking out because I, I don't know what's going on and then this one there was a flash of light the door is closed the lights are out and my camera doesn't have a light on it that one i still have not figured out so i like to think that it's these old baseball players or maybe um you know coming to play or maybe the old collectors like that had these stamp backs and uh, they're coming to check out their collections again. Because I know if uh, if I'm a ghost, I'm going to find my collection. <laughs> oh, man. So if, you, if you end up with my collection um, after I'm gone, uh, expect a visit. <laughs> He's going to come to look at some baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, man, I, I'm, I'm so I'm – so, Truly honored that I was your first guest. I did not realize that. Yeah, man. All right, brother. Thanks. But you have, so a, you have a great channel. Uh, you do a great job. Thank you. I hope uh, we get to do this again. Uh, you know, sometime over here, over on your channel, whenever. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yep. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.